gentlemen, the piano stylings of the lovely Emily Brown. Uh, we ended 2015 talking about this subject, life is hard. You remember that? Um, I'll tell you what, I just, Dave was preaching at the beginning of December and then I sort of jumped in when I got time to be close to Christmas and I preached this little short mini Christmas series on how life is difficult and that's why there's a Christmas. And I'm telling you, I had more feedback from that series of Christmas messages than probably any other series of Christmas messages I've ever preached. I've preached a thousand times at Christmas. Christmas is always an interesting time for preachers because, um, you, you know, it's just one Christmas story. There's just one Christmas story in the Bible, and you really have to preach it at Christmas time. And so you're always going, okay, I, is there another angle I could take on this? Is there another view? Maybe I'll talk about uh, Christmas from the point of view of a sheep, you know, or something like that, because you're always looking for some... Easter is easy because you only have to do one Easter sermon a year, but there's usually two or three Christmas sermons. And man, I've been doing this for 25, 30 years, and after a while you go, wow, I've pretty much exhausted this. I don't know what else to say. I've preached messages on hope and peace and joy and all of that kind of stuff. But I'm telling you, when I preached on the difficulty of life and what Christmas has to do with that... I received more emails and more people coming up to me and saying, man, that was exactly what I needed to hear. Remember I said, if life kind of stinks for you right now, congratulations, you're biblical. Um, man, there were so many people who said, wow, that was so helpful to hear that. So we were talking about this issue of life being difficult and not to be sort of freaked out when you go, gosh, it's Christmas, life should be better. Because the fact of the matter is, Christmas exists because life is difficult. Christmas exists because we're all in a mess. And God decided He wants to clean up that mess, and that's why He sent His Son, Jesus. Amen? So we talked about that at the end of the year, and I even closed up the last, Saturday, uh, last Sunday in uh, December, and we looked at a passage in Romans 5 where, it, it, just to paraphrase, it basically says, listen, you should rejoice when things go difficult, uh, you have difficulty in your life, because... It's those tribulations or trials that build perseverance in you, and that perseverance leads to proven character, and that proven character leads to hope that does not disappoint. And I try to end the year on this note to say, listen, I know some of us are struggling. I know that it's difficult at times, and if it's not difficult for you right now, just wait a while because it'll get difficult because that's how life is, right? And so we better figure out how to have hope in the midst of difficulty because if we don't, we're going to be swimming upstream a lot. And so we talked about that at the end of the year, and then we got into the first couple of weeks of January. You remember the first Sunday in January is a big celebration day. We had the big meal together, and then, and then we uh, ordained a new elder. We received new members. We sort of rejoiced at everything God is doing in our church. And then the next uh, Sunday, which was last week, we looked at Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, for I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. And we thought about how that applies to Grace Fellowship as a church and the faithfulness of God and how we have so much to look forward to and so much to be excited about in our personal lives and as a church. So um, we got into all of that kind of stuff. And I, I felt like those first two weeks of the year were wonderful and important and significant, but I was kind of bummed 
because I felt like there was more that needed to be said on this subject of hope in a difficult life. And so I didn't want to just close the door on that. I wanted to come back to that because in a couple weeks, we're going to be starting a new study on Sunday mornings in the book of Ephesians. And, and it's going to be, I'm going to start in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1, and we're going to cover the whole book of Ephesians all the way through the last part of chapter 6. And the reason we're doing that, besides the fact that God put it on my heart, is because you voted for it. Remember that? We had those little sheets that we handed out and said, what are the key books that you would like to have preached on? The number one book was the book of Ephesians. So we're going to jump into the book of Ephesians in a couple of weeks, but before we get there, I want us to slow the train down for a second, and I want us to get back to this subject of hope. And I want us to be thinking about what hope is all about. I want us to do a little bit of a study of biblical hope, because one of the things I'm aware of is that our world has the wrong definition of hope, and a lot of us in the church do too. We're confused by it, and so I want to make sure we get it biblical. So I want you to begin. We're going to be jumping around the scripture today. Hopefully you brought a Bible. If not, look on with somebody, but go to the New Testament of the book of 1 Corinthians. So this is Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, and I want you to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Now, while you're turning there, someone tell me from your vast Bible knowledge, what is the topic of 1 Corinthians 13? Love. It's one of the most famous chapters in all of the Bible, right? It's that chapter that says love is patient, love is kind, and goes on and defines love and gives us all this beautiful picture of what love is that's so different than what the world thinks, right? And if you've ever been to a wedding, you've probably heard that, ver that passage read, and it's awesome, and most of us are fairly familiar with it. But if you get to the bottom of the chapter, chapter 13, I want you to go to verse 13 of chapter 13, and let's look at that together. After explaining everything about love, here's what he says, but now, faith, hope, love, abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. These three things abide. They, they continue all the time, he says. These are the pillars. These are the sort of foundational marks of the Christian life. Faith, hope, and love. And, and the reason I'm pointing this out is because in Paul's theology, he is saying that if you want to think about what a Christian life is supposed to look like, you will find that these are the foundational things that, that the Christian life is built on. It's not about good works. It's not about right doctrine. It's not about all those things that are also important. At the foundation, it's about these three things, faith, hope, love. And he says they abide. It's not going to change. It's always going to be that way. Faith, hope, and love. So I want you to think about this for a second, because if you've been around the church for very long, any church, this church or other churches, my guess is that you've probably heard a ton of sermons on faith. You've probably heard about faith from every point of view. If you've read any of Paul's letters in the New Testament, he just keeps harping on this issue of salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, and he unpacks what faith is all about. Um, and so, so the church is great about explaining faith. And then the church is also great about explaining love. There's tons of sermons on love, and we talk about how God's love is not like the world's love, and we're supposed to love like God loves, and love involves things like grace and mercy and forgiveness and all of that kind of stuff, and the love of God and how it's poured out in us and it's supposed to be poured out to other people, and we've all heard a ton of sermons on that. But I bet you have not heard a ton of sermons on hope. I bet you haven't heard a lot of teaching on what is hope all about? What is Christian hope all about? What is it supposed to look like? Hope out of these three is kind of the redheaded stepchild of the three. 
it's like, you know, we sort of don't pay enough attention to that. And these are real pillars. So, and the thing is, it's not like hope is a minor theme in the Bible. It's not like you just have it in this verse and then, you know, you either preach on this verse or you don't. It's like you go anywhere in the scriptures and you're going to find hope. In fact, I had a hunch about this. I thought there's a lot of hope mentioned in the Bible. So what I did this week was I took my Bible and I started in Genesis 1.1 and I read from beginning to end Genesis to Revelation and I marked down every place that the word hope is mentioned. Or maybe I Googled it. I, it was one of those. I, I, I don't remember which one it was, but somehow I, I found this out. In the Bible, the word hope is mentioned 129 separate times. Now, that's a lot. But what's interesting about it is this. Every single time, it's connected to God. Every time the Bible talks about hope, it's talking about God. And so God is trying to tell us something here, that hope is, is this profoundly important issue that if you're going to know anything about God, you're going to have to know something about hope. But here's the thing. Has it ever occurred to you, if you're a Christian, has it ever occurred to you that hope should be so prominently displayed in your life that people should stop you and ask about it? Because that's actually what the Bible says. There's this, take your Bibles and turn to 1 Peter. 1 Peter's almost all the way to the back of your Bible. If you get to Revelation, you obviously went too far. But go to 1 Peter chapter 3. And as you're turning there, let me just tell you this about um, 1 Peter. In chapter 3, um, Peter has already been developing this, this school of thought. And basically, he's saying, listen, I'm writing this letter to Christians who are going through hardship. So you need to know his intended audience is those Christians who are saying, you know what, life is really hard. And in fact, the people he's writing to are primarily all refugees. Because of their faith, they've been chased out of their land for fear of their lives. So this is very similar to what we're seeing on the news today with the Middle Eastern refugees and their, their um, radical Islamic Muslim groups that are coming through and, and they're trying to um, take over and they're killing people who are not of their same faith and they're taking over their land and they're chasing them away. And there are literally millions of refugees right now fleeing because of that. If you, if you didn't know that, you've been living in a cave for the last six months. That's what's happening in our world today. Very similar to the people that Peter is writing to. These are people who, because of their faith in Jesus, have been chased out of their homeland and are now suffering. And they are, they are trying to uh, live in a land where they don't know anybody, don't speak the language, don't know the culture, and they're not being accepted in that land either. There's no place that's home for them. And the only thing they really have is each other. And so Peter is writing to them and he's saying, listen, I know this is a really hard time, and I know that when you accepted Jesus, you probably had this idea that, boy, my life's going to get all straightened out now and everything's going to be better because I'm going to be a follower of Jesus. And now things have actually gotten worse on the surface for you. And so he's writing to those people, okay? And here's what he says to them in uh, 1 Peter chapter 3, if you go to verse 15, it says this, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. Now, this is a really well-known verse, especially to people who are into Christian apologetics. 
Now, if you don't know what that term means, apologetics, it's not about apologizing. Apologetics means basically giving a reasonable uh, basis for what you believe. It's about arguing for the claims of Christianity from the standpoint of reason. It's about um, sort of checking with uh, historical data and scientific data and, and looking at the text and, and asking, is this legitimate text and all that kind of stuff. And there are a lot of people who love apologetics and they've heard this verse and they memorize this verse because it says you need to always be ready to give a defense. And, and I first learned this verse when I was probably 15 and I was at an apologetics conference and they, and they told us, memorize this verse because this needs to be the foundation for why you have a faith that you can explain to people that holds water. And, and that's an absolutely legitimate application of this. But what I want to point out is this, that when we think of this as an apologetics verse, we are missing the main point of the verse. Let me read it to you again. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you yet with gentleness and reverence. Always being ready to give a defense to anyone who asks you to give an account for what? Your hope. It should be, according to Peter, so obvious to people who are not Christians that you have hope by the way that you live that they will actually ask you to explain it. That they should, they should see you and instead of saying, you know, why do you believe in this when, when you've always been taught this? Or why do you believe in this? Are we sure that this book is even legitimate? Instead of that question, what they should be saying is, listen, I've been watching your life and you're going through the same junk that I'm going through and yet you always have hope. Can you explain that to me? He says we should be ready to give a defense to anyone who asks us to explain why we're so hopeful. One of the marks of a Christian is hope. Go back to those three pillars, faith, hope, love. Mark of Christianity is faith. We believe that everything that, uh, that we have in Christ, we have through faith, not by works, not by keeping the law, not by any of that. Faith is a foundation. Love, it says, they will know you are my disciples by what? Your love for one another. People should be able to look at you and see faith in your life and go, what is it that's different about you? They should be able to look at you and see love in your life and go, what is it that's different about you? And when people look at you, they should see hope in your life. And if they don't see hope in your life, then um, maybe there's something wrong. And so without trying to make any, put anybody in a real bad mood, you don't have to raise your hand or anything, but I just want to ask you to honestly think about this yourself. When's the last time someone asked you to explain why you're so hopeful? Does that happen to you? And if not, might be something that we need to learn. Might be something that we need to grow in. Um, this hope that is within us is supposed to be profound, and it's supposed to be life-changing. In other words, we go through trials and difficulties just like everyone else as Christians. We go through trials and difficulties just like everyone else. Christians, though, should not lose hope, unlike everyone else, no matter how difficult things get. And the reality should be so shocking when they see our hope that they stop and ask us to explain it. Have you ever heard of a guy named Nick Vujicic? You know this guy? Have you seen this guy? So if you haven't seen Nick Vujicic, uh, you can tell from the picture, um, he's not like everybody else. He was born this way. 
no limbs whatsoever. He doesn't have any arms. He doesn't have any legs. What he does have is, is like a, something like half a foot that comes out of his left hip, which, which he can pivot, which allows him to move, not really walk, but move. And um, that's it. He was born that way. And when Nick tells his story, he explains that until he was about eight years old, he was one depressed puppy. And can you blame him? Just imagine every day you wake up and you're still like that. And you go, wow, all my friends are running and playing. All my friends are on the soccer team. All of my friends, you know, are going to dances or whatever the issue is, but not me because I'm this. I'm that guy with no limbs. So he said, though, what, around that time, somebody shared with him the good news of Jesus Christ, and he came to know Christ, and it radically transformed everything for him. And for the first time, it occurred to him that maybe it's not an accident. Maybe God has a plan for my life that involves me being disabled in such a strong way. Maybe there's something that God can do through me that he wouldn't be able to do in the same way through somebody who's completely able-bodied. And he began to think about that and pray about that, and he began to have hope that God had a future for him that he was specifically designed to fulfill, and he began to put his hope in Jesus Christ, and now he spends his whole life traveling the world. He speaks to millions of people, hundreds of millions of people every year, and he shares this story. And as he shares the story of Jesus Christ, and he talks about the power of God to transform lives, even while we're struggling people's lives are changed. Because he has a credibility when he speaks about that that you and I don't have, right? And so it's an amazing thing. And the thing that's interesting, this guy, you should Google him. If you don't know anything about Nick or YouTube him, just type his name into YouTube and watch some videos. He's a golfer. He's a swimmer. He's a diver. Uh, and it goes on and on. All these things that he can do. And, and, you know, I'm not saying he's a great golfer, but he's better than Dave. <laughs> and, and, and it's amazing. And with all that, you would think people would always want to come up to him and go, man, how, is, how do you swing a golf club, right? But they don't ask those questions. You know what they ask him? How is it that in spite of everything, you're always so upbeat? Why are you always so hopeful? Why is it that it seems like you live with a purpose and I'm, I'm perfectly physically fine and I don't have a purpose? And he gets to answer that question. Now we're talking about 1 Peter 3.15. Giving an account for the hope that is within you that is so obvious that everybody can see it. And God uses him to change the world. And his entire ministry is built around the fact that he suffers. And from that suffering, he lives in hope. And millions of lives have been changed because of it. That's how it should be for all of us, if we're Christians. And you're not going to like hearing this, but going through hardships, facing trials, living with disabilities, creates a context in which our hope is able to shine. Does that make sense? That as we struggle, if we hold on to the one true hope that we have, it's obvious. 
But before we get too far on the subject, I think we need to start by defining or trying to at least give some clarity to this term hope. Because as I said before, I think the world has a really skewed view of hope. This is the kind of thing you, this is the way the word hope is used in our culture. Somebody will say something like, man, I hope the car starts tomorrow, right? When you say something like that, what are you expressing? You're expressing doubt in your car, right? Or you say, man, I sure hope we have enough money to go on vacation this summer. What are you expressing? You're expressing doubt in your bank account, in your financial situation. It seems like whenever people talk about hope, they're using it in a way where they're actually saying, I don't think this is likely to happen, but I, I'm sort of having wishful thinking about that. that that's kind of what people tend to mean by hope. Um, but that's not what hope's all about, at least not biblical hope. A biblical perspective on hope is that our, help, our, our hope is not in a car battery. Our hope is not in a bank account. Our hope isn't Jesus Christ. Did you hear what I said? Our hope is in Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, let me be clear about what I didn't say. I didn't say that we can hope that Christ will do this or that for us. I didn't say that. I didn't say that, that we can hope that one day we'll get to heaven. I didn't say that. What I said is that our hope is in Christ himself, not in what he can do for us, not in what we expect him to do for us, but in him. And you say, well, that's just splitting hairs. What difference does it make? Let me tell you something. It makes all the difference in the world when you have thoughts and expectations and desires about what you think God's going to do for you, and then it doesn't happen. Because when you put your hope in what you think God's going to do, and it doesn't happen the way you thought, what is your thought? God let me down. That's not true. If we put our hope in God himself, and we let him decide, what that looks like in our lives as it gets carried out, then our faith remains strong. Our hope is in Christ himself. Hoping in Christ is not like, um, you know, buying a Powerball ticket and going, I, I, I think, I, I, I just got a feeling. It's not that. By the way, anybody? Powerball? <laughs> Still nobody, right? Okay. Um, to put your hope in Christ is to live according to actual reality. When you, when you buy the lottery ticket, and you, it's not that you have no chance. I mean, you have a chance. What did they say? It was one in 256 million or something chance. You have a chance. But that's not reality. It's very unlikely, right? But when you put your hope in Christ, you are living according to actual reality. He really does exist. He really has defeated sin and death on our behalf. He really is alive today and seated at the right hand of the Father and making intercession on our behalf for us. He really is in control of everything. He really does love you with an unquenchable love. That's reality. That's not wishful thinking. That's not, wouldn't it be nice if? That's reality. To put our hope in Christ is to simply live in reality. The hope that we have in Christ is not wishing that one day we'll get to heaven. The hope we have in Christ is living with an understanding of how life actually is when you have a personal relationship with Jesus. He 
is our hope. Now take your Bibles and go to um, the book of Psalms and go to Psalm 71. Old Testament, if you open your Bible to the middle, you'll probably hit Psalms and find Psalm 71. And I want to read to you Psalm 71, verse 5. And I could give you a list of 50 verses here that say basically the same thing. I'm going to show you two, one Old Testament and one New Testament, but there are many more. Here in Psalm 71, verse 5, the psalmist, this is a prayer, and the psalmist is speaking to God, and here's what he says, Psalm 71, 5, for you are my hope. O Lord God, you are my confidence from my youth. You are my hope. He's not talking about some promise that he thinks God has made or some plan that he has for his life that he's asked God to bless. He's talking about God himself. And he's saying, you are my hope. Now go over to the New Testament, the book of 1 Timothy. And in 1 Timothy, go to chapter 1. 1 Timothy is a letter that is written from the Apostle Paul to a young pastor by the name of Timothy, who, who is pastoring the church at Ephesus. We're going to learn more about him as we get into our study of the book of Ephesians, because Timothy was the pastor there. And, and he was a protege of Paul's, and Paul was always trying to encourage him. And so he wrote him these letters, and that's why we have 1 and 2 Timothy in our Bible. So in those days, when you wrote a letter, you didn't get to the bottom and sign it. You actually signed it at the beginning which actually makes more sense to me. You know who your letter is from when you start reading it. So that's what he was doing. I want you to go to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 1. And this is Paul's signature on the letter. Here's what he says. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, who is our hope. Christ Jesus, who is our hope. Not Christ Jesus who brings us hope, not Christ Jesus who teaches us about hope, not Christ Jesus who gives us a reason to hope, but Christ Jesus who himself is our hope. And it really makes a difference. He is our hope. We hope in him, not in some desired outcome or some wished for experience. We must get to the point. He's the point. We put our hope in him. And we're going to look at Romans 8 to help us really get to this. So, so you can go ahead and start looking for Romans 8 while I while I set this up, because I want us to get a grasp on this subject, because as I said before, the world has a lot of confusion about this issue of hope. And uh, for people who don't know Christ, there's a conspicuous lack of hope in our culture. If, if someone was to describe our culture, probably uh, you know, a sociologist or a historian that is writing for future generations, and they wanted to, they wanted to describe what are some of the key words that describe our culture, I don't think hope would even enter into their mind. Hope is not very prevalent in our culture today. And again, um, when the world thinks of hope, they're thinking in terms of, I bought a lottery ticket, I really hope I win. They're thinking in terms of, um, say, dreaming about your future and um, fame and fortune and maybe climbing the ladder in your, in your work or or getting that relationship with that perfect person who's just going to make you feel completely fulfilled and all of that kind of stuff. You hear people talk about hope for that reason. But what's interesting about that is to evaluate that just in light of what um, we can see. How strong is that kind of hope? How valuable is that kind of hope? That one day I'll have more. One day I'll be rich. One day I'll be famous. One day I'll be fill in the blank, right? Imagine for a second. If you were actually in a position where you had all of that stuff, where you have everything people want, you could, 
You could buy anything you want. You can live wherever you want. You can date whoever you want. You can have whatever job you want. Everything you have on a silver platter, life's been handed to you. Do you think you would have joy? Do you think you'd be fulfilled? Because the world says you would. And, and just, you know, watch yourself here because you're going, oh, no, because that's the right answer at church. But think about this. I know you thought this week about the Powerball, whether you bought a ticket or not. And I know you thought about, what would I do with the money? If I got that kind, what would I do with the money, right? And I know that a whole bunch of you said, I would give like 90% of it away. And I just want to tell you in case you don't know, you're a liar. <laughs> if you told yourself you'd give 90% of it away, you wouldn't. And I'll tell you why. Because you're not giving away 90% of what you have now. And he who is faithful with little will be entrusted with much. And we're not givers. We're hoarders in general, right? And so don't tell yourself, well, I've been holding on to everything because I don't have much. But if I had a lot, I'd give it away. No, you wouldn't. You would want more. But, but just think about these people that we can think of throughout history who had it all. Fame, fortune, um, all of that. Think about Elvis Presley. That, that we'll try to do this generationally. Okay, think about Elvis Presley. When Elvis was the king, I mean, he had everything. He had more money than he could spend in his lifetime. Every beautiful woman throwing themselves at him. He had he had fame and fortune and opportunity. He could speak and everyone would listen. He had power. He had influence. He had everything people think. If I only had that, I'd be okay. And how did that work out for him? Not so well. An overdose of drugs and an early death. And we could continue. We could talk about Marilyn Monroe from that same era, same story. We could talk about uh, maybe from a, a more recent era, um, a guy you may have heard of named Michael Jackson. Think of his story. Or someone who was maybe even a little younger than that or around that same age, Kurt Cobain. And think of his story. And on and on it goes with people who had everything, so much so that other people worshipped them. And what they found was that when you have everything you thought you ever wanted and you're still empty on the inside, there is no emptiness that compares. That's as dark as it gets. So my point is, the world puts their hope in things like this. And God says, as Christians, I have come to bring you abundant life. And that means you can put your hope in me, and I always satisfy, and I never fail. Now, Romans chapter 8, and shed some light on this. Let's begin in Romans chapter 8. I guess I should turn there since you guys turn there. Romans chapter 8, and we're going to begin in verse 18, okay? Uh, Romans 8, 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the ancient longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth 
together until now. So what is Paul saying? He's saying, listen, it's universal. All of creation is dealing with this. We all live in a world that is marred by sin, and therefore nothing is quite right, and everyone knows it. And they may not know what's wrong, and they may not know what to do about it, but everyone has this awareness that it just isn't right. I mean, how many people have you talked to and they go, why is there so much suffering in this world? If God is so good, why is there so much war? Why, why do babies get cancer? I mean, come on. If your God is so great, how do you explain that? We all have this sense that something's not quite right, and we're living in the pain and the suffering of a world that is broken. And what he's saying is that those people who don't know Christ, they're just sifting through the rubble trying to find something in this whole mess. But then in Christ, it's a completely different thing. It says that the creation, this is verse 21, the creation itself also, um, uh, let's go back to verse 20. For the creation was subjected to futility. It's futile. All of this digging through the rubble, trying to find a, a diamond in the rough, a reason to live, some purpose, some joy, some hope, it's futile because the world is broken. And so he says that everything is longing for God to make it right. And so he's given it over to futility, but look why. It says, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery. In other words, there is a hope that we look to. God allows us to live in this kind of futility, in this kind of brokenness, so that from the standpoint, from the context of this brokenness, we will turn and hope in the only thing that is worthy of our hope, and that is Christ himself. And so the battle is not about whether you're going to live in this broken world. Guess what? We're all here. The battle is whether you're going to be looking for your hope in Christ or whether you're going to be digging through the rubble of, rubble of this world to find some hope. And that's the point that he's trying to make. And so things are broken. And I don't know if you've noticed this, but things are getting worse, not better, right? And so in other words, because of sin in this old world, the whole world has been subjected to the process of deterioration. You say, I'm living. I say, well, you're dying. The world is deteriorating. Everything is sort of falling apart. And God could have destroyed this creation when everything went wrong, but he didn't. Instead, it says he subjected us to this futility so that we would look for our hope in him, which is our only chance. And so our situation as Christians also involves this waiting and longing to be released from this. Let's pick it up in verse 23. Not only this, but also we ourselves, the Christians, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. So let me just apologize on behalf of bad preachers everywhere. If somebody told you that if you come to Jesus, everything will be easy from here on out. It's not true. That's not what the Bible says. It says that even we Christians are subject to that same groaning, that same pain, the same difficulty because we're still in this broken system. And then he goes on to say that um, we're eagerly awaiting our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body, for in hope we have been saved. But hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. So he's saying, don't be shocked. 
when it doesn't all pan out the way that you thought it would just now. Because you're not going to be able to see everything that you hope for. But the day is coming, as we put our hope in Christ, when all will be set right. And so living in hope involves faith. Faith, according to Hebrews, is the substance of things hoped for. That's, those two go hand in hand. We don't see Him. We have to believe Based on the evidence, both the objective evidence and the subjective evidence of our experience with God, we have to believe that He is who He is and who He says He is, and that He's going to do the things He says He's going to do. And, and because of that, our hope is not wishful thinking, it's confident living. We get to live in confidence because of that. In other words, it goes beyond just our emotions, our imagination, our ability to project things differently than they really are. It goes way beyond that. We have actually the opportunity to live according to reality. And again, the reality is that Jesus is who He says He is, and He will do what He says He will do. And we don't have to wish for that to be true. We can know that it's true. Look at verse 28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. Does that say everything is good? No. It says that even with all this futility, all this brokenness, all of this hurt, God can make it work together for good. We don't wish that He would do that. We don't think that maybe He will do that. We know that He will do that because we know Him. Verse 29 for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? Let's just stop there. And let's just think about this for a second. This is a big, long doctrinal list of things that God has done. He foreknew, he predestined, he called, he justified, he glorified. For today's purposes, here's what I want you to notice about that list. Foreknew and predestined, it happened before the world was ever made. God has been at work in this since long before you were part of the story. And glorified points to all the way forward to eternity in heaven, because we're not yet glorified, right? And yet it says that he has done all of these things on our behalf. So in other words, that's the one we're putting our hope in. This one who is able from eternity past to eternity future to take care of the things that we are not able to take care of. And then he says, what then shall we say to these things if God is for us, who's against us? So, so what place does fear have in the life of a Christian? What, what place does anxiety and doubt and discouragement have in the life of a Christian? He's saying, listen, I'm telling you, this is not how we wish it was. This is how it is. This is not how we wish God was. This is who God actually is. And so when we put our hope in this, we're not playing psychological games with ourselves. We're not uh, doing wishful thinking. We're actually living in reality. And it goes on, verse 32. Who did not, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. So let's not forget this. this, this when we talk about this one who is our hope, we're not talking about some genie in a bottle. We're not talking about a fairy godmother. 
we're talking about the one who was and is and is to come. We're talking about the one who loves us so much that even while we were yet enemies of his, he condescended to become one of us. Why? So he could die on a cross, so he could defeat death on our, behalf, on our, our sin on our behalf, and who rose from the grave so he could defeat death on our behalf. And because of his resurrection, our resurrection is guaranteed by faith. That's who we're talking about. The one who died, yes, who is risen, okay? Let's remember where our hope is. I'm, this is not some, um, you know, multi-level marketing presentation where I tell you that one day you're going to be rich if you just do this and I get you all hyped up and everybody buys my book and they run out. That's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about maybe. We're not talking about it happened for this one guy. We're talking about who God really is and how God really acts and why we should live according to that reality. But it gets better. It says, uh, verse 35, who is, or verse 34, who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress, persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword, just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. And you go, ooh, that doesn't sound good. But guess what? Remember who Peter was writing to? These refugees who are suffering? That's exactly how they felt. And they're going, what is it? How does it work together that we're being like sheep led to the slaughter, and yet there's this one we're supposed to have our hope in? And I love that Paul, Paul doesn't pull any punches and he doesn't pretend that life in Christ is going to not involve suffering because it is going to involve suffering. But here's what he says. But in all these things, what things? The bad things, the peril, the, the nakedness, the, the um, brokenness of our society, the being sheep led to slaughter. In all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. Now, I want you to notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say we will one day overwhelmingly conquer. It says we overwhelmingly conquer right now. That's different. We overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. See, that's the hope we're talking about. And, and that's just not wishful thinking. That's something different. That's something powerful. And that's not how we kind of think it might be. That's how it is. And some of us are struggling mightily right now. And the last thing I want to do is stand up here and give this rah-rah sermon and go, see, guys, everything's actually fine. It's the figment of your imagination, right? That cancer is not real. Just don't give it any power in your life. It'll be fine. Baloney. The things you're struggling with are real. We really struggle in this world. Life is difficult. As I said, that's why there's a Christmas. And some of us are struggling mightily right now in one way or another, and we're going through some tribulations that God intends to lead to perseverance in us, and God intends that to lead to proven character in us, and that proven character leads us to this hope realized, this hope that does not disappoint. 
And I don't want to gloss it over and say, just put your hope in Jesus and then everything else goes away and it's all going to be fine. That's not the point. The point is, Jesus is our hope. And while we struggle, some of us right now, some of the people who are hearing what I'm saying right now are flat on their backs and just broken. What do you do when you're flat on your back? The only thing you can do, look up. You look up. You look up to the one who is our hope. And you remember that he is who he says he is. And that your struggles are actually a small part of a much bigger picture. And the much bigger picture, he's already taken care of all of it. He is who he says he is. And so you look up. Because what else can you do? And maybe, just maybe, you're flat on your back right now. Because being flat on your back is the best position for you to be in so that you can finally stop and see what real hope is. And then other people, when they see your life, will see it too. And you'll have to give an account for the hope that is in you. Nick Vujicic was flat on his back. But when he looked up and saw his hope, it changed everything. Here's what I can tell you. Jesus is my hope. Is he yours? Let's pray together.